48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. China demands that Britain correct its mistakes after London tells Hong Kongers how they can become UK citizens. Ireland becomes the latest country to scrap extradition to the SAR. And Cathay Pacific staff say they're under pressure to quickly accept pay cuts. The Foreign Ministry in Hong Kong says Britain must immediately correct its mistakes over its new resident visa for BNO passport holders. Vicky Wong has details. In a statement responding to London's announcement of further details of the new BNO visa, the Foreign Ministry says Britain must put an end to its hypocritical performances and political manipulation. It says before the handover, Britain had explicitly promised not to grant BNO passport holders the right of abode and its move to offer holders a route to citizenship is a blatant breach of its commitments. The ministry once again accuses Britain of interfering in China's internal affairs and insists that the introduction of the SAR's national security law, which prompted London's visa move, was necessary to put an end to chaos in the territory. It also rejects the suggestion that Britain has a responsibility towards people in its former colony, saying London's so-called promise to the people of Hong Kong is wishful thinking and nonsense. The statement says Britain is attempting to use the BNO passport issue to interfere in Hong Kong affairs and contain China's development, but this will only end in failure. The Republic of Ireland has become the latest European country to suspend its extradition agreement with Hong Kong in response to the SAR's new national security law. Priscilla Ung has more. Ireland's Foreign Affairs Minister, Simon Coveney, told the Parliament in Dublin that the security legislation was adopted without any meaningful consultation and risked undermining Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy. He said the decision to stop extradition signals Ireland's concerns about the SAR's rule of law and the erosion of judicial independence promised under the One Country, Two Systems principle. At least eight Western countries have also terminated extradition agreement with Hong Kong in recent months. The Beijing and Hong Kong administrations have consistently criticized countries that take such action. Hours before Dublin suspended its agreement, Hong Kong announced it was reciprocating Finland's decision to pull out of an extradition deal. Cathay Pacific's Pilots Union says it's seeking legal advice on new lower paid contracts being offered to its members amid the airline's restructuring. It says they have too little time to consider their options. Timmy Sung reports. The Hong Kong Air Crew Officers Association has told RTHK it is looking at the legality of the way Cafe Pacific is handling the new contracts for its pilots. The association's General Secretary, Chris Beebe, says the amount of time pilots are getting to decide what to do is extremely short, with one deadline coming next Wednesday and another a week after that. The benefits that will accrue to the pilots signing will depend on when they sign. And here's what's important about that. Uh, this is clearly a way of forcing or intimidating the pilots into making a very serious uh, decision on their lives and their careers in a very short amount of time. Uh, we view that as fundamentally unfair. Pilots who don't sign a new contract will be terminated with three months' pay, while those who are being made redundant are leaving with six months' pay, Mr Beebe says. The new contracts, which are similar to those for new hire since 2018, offer pay which is based more on flying hours than previously, leading to far lower salaries in periods where the airline is largely idle. The degree of pay cut will depend on which contract the pilot was on before, with one cafe pilot saying he expects a reduction of about 40%. 
Ms. Beebe says pilots will just end up getting whatever the airline decides. The company has the ability to set what the threshold will be for the pilots to receive full remuneration. It's arbitrary, it's completely up to the company, and it does not leave the pilot really with much of an opportunity to have any control over his income. It's completely up to the company. CAFE says the new contracts for pilots and cabin crew are highly competitive by industry standards. Health officials have reported four new COVID-19 cases with only one local infection. The Centre for Health Protection says that the 29-year-old man's case is being linked to a previous imported patient. The remaining three patients recently returned from Pakistan, India and the United States. The total number of confirmed cases here now stands at 5,284. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. LegCo's House Committee has rejected a request for a debate on the detention of 12 Hong Kongers who were picked up by the mainland Coast Guard while apparently attempting to flee to Taiwan. The Civic Party's Kwok Kaki wanted the matter on the agenda at next week's full council meeting so officials could explain whether the police and the government flying service had attracted the group as they tried to leave the SIR two months ago. The pro-government camp voted against the debate and accused the pandemic of attempting to interfere in the mainland's legal system. The DAB's Elizabeth Quatt says her opponents just wanted to attack the government. I don't think that they should use LegCo as a platform to try to mislead Hong Kong people and use this case to attack the Hong Kong government and the police. And I don't think they should use the LegCo platform to use misleading statements to please their voters. The convener of the pan-democratic lawmakers, Wu Chiwai, says he doesn't believe the chief executive will deliver her delayed policy address next month as promised. He noted that Carrie Lam had yet to arrange a visit to Beijing, which the CE had said was necessary before her speech. Mr Wu says it's clear that Mrs Lam no longer has much, much say, even when it comes to measures relating to Hong Kong. It also says that the role and the positions of the chief executive of Hong Kong is being looked down from the mainland government point of view. When Carrie Lam cannot honour her policy in Hong Kong, this showed Carrie Lam has no governing power in the Hong Kong situations. The pastor helping murder suspect Chan Tong Kai has appealed for the victim's mother to understand that the 23-year-old can't turn himself into Taiwan by the deadline she set due to visa problems. As Timmy Sung reports, Mr Chan is reportedly feeling frustrated about the stalemate. The mother of Poon Hiu Wing has said she won't plead for Mr Chan to be spared the death penalty unless he flies to the island by today one year after he was released from jail in Hong Kong for money laundering. But Reverend Peter Akun said the 23-year-old is still determined to return to Taiwan, but is unable to get a visa yet. As you can see, the problem now is not that Chen Tongkai isn't willing to return to Taiwan. There is just no way to get a visa yet, which is why he can't set off today. The reference said in a message sent to media outlets. Tongkai feels frustrated too, and hopes Poon's mom will understand, he added. Reverend Kuhn said that the young man's lawyers have called a special channel established by Taiwan's authorities about seven times and will also try different means to arrange his trip to the island. Meanwhile, Mrs. Poon, who had offered to act as an intermediary between Hong Kong and Taiwan, said authorities in Taipei had contacted her and said they were hoping to be able to sit down with their Hong Kong counterparts to discuss the matter.
She urged the local police to contact her as soon as possible. Democratic Party lawmaker James Toh also called for authorities in Hong Kong and Taiwan to hold talks on the matter. He said SCR officials should find out what assistance Taipei requires, rather than just insisting that it cannot help. A major tour operator says it will run local tour groups at a loss as the government moves to ease social distancing measures. Candice Wong has a story. The executive director of WWPKG Holdings, Yun Chen Ning, said since the government announced earlier in the week that licensed travel agencies are allowed to run tour groups of as many as 30 people from today, it had received more than 100 inquiries and about 60 bookings each day for its tours. He described the response as quite good. Mr Yun said that a tour of about a dozen people will set off tomorrow. He said WWPKG KG will run such tours even though they would be loss-making after the COVID outbreak battered the tourism trade and many employees lost their jobs or were forced to take unpaid leave or pay cuts. Mr Yun said in general, tour groups would only break even if they have about 15 to 20 travellers. On infection control, tour guides are to be tested for COVID-19 before the start of the tour and participants are required to wear a face mask except when they are eating. The Secretary for Commerce and Economic Development, Edward Yao, called on everyone to be self-disciplined and abide by the rules. The clink of glasses will be replaced by clicks of the mouse this year, as Hong Kong hopes to bring cheer back to the world of whining and dining by moving some main events of the annual festival online. Wang Yinting reports. Cheers! The tourism board set online wine tasting classes and workshops by Michelin star chefs are on the menu this year as the organizers adapt to restrictions forced by the COVID-19 pandemic. The event has been extended from the usual few days to five weeks, from November 11 to December 15, and special events will be live-streamed on a dedicated website. The highlights of past years were the outdoor food and beverage booths at the central harbour front. But this will be replaced by an online wine cellar involving more than 100 wine merchants and 34 wine tasting and foodie workshops that will be held during weekends. Also on offer will be discounts from 30 high-end restaurants on takeaway menus. The Tourism Board's chairman, YK Pang, said he expects the event to be highly popular, adding that many overseas members of the travel sector We'll also be observing how Hong Kong organizes such a large-scale event during the pandemic. We've already told people that we are doing this, but in this new method, uh, online and offline. And I know that many of the travel trade in the other countries in which, you know, our source countries, are actually all going to be logging online and trying to uh, understand how we do it and also to enjoy it. Now, they can't order the food and they can't order the wines, but they can actually see what's happening and they can learn from it and they'll be enjoying it. More than 500 restaurants around the city will also have discount offers for dine-in customers. Overseas, Libya's warring factions have signed an immediate permanent ceasefire deal intended to halt nine years of civil war. It follows talks in Geneva between the country's two main opposing groups. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who backs the internationally recognised government in Tripoli, said the agreement lacked credibility because it wasn't signed by Libya's top leaders. Foreign fighters have three months to leave the country. The UN's acting special envoy for Libya, Stephanie Williams, 
called on other nations to stop meddling. The international community must also do its part by fully respecting and supporting this Libyan-Libyan ceasefire agreement. This includes full respect for the principle of non-interference in Libya's internal affairs and full implementation of the UN arms embargo on Libya. The Czech Health Minister, Roman Primula, has refused an appeal from the Prime Minister to resign for an apparent breach of coronavirus restrictions. He was photographed leaving a restaurant late at night. Mr Primula said he intended a meeting there. The Prime Minister, Andrei Babish, said he would sack him if he didn't stand down. What's happened today is an absolute disaster. I don't understand. When we ask people to follow the rules, to wear masks, even in the car, and we complicate people's lives by closing restaurants, shops, and restricting their movement, then we must lead by example. Such a mistake cannot be excused. We can't preach water and drink wine. To Sporton and Rugby, England's match against the Barbarians on Sunday has been cancelled after several Barbarian players were found to have breached coronavirus restrictions. The match was supposed to act as a warm-up for England's delayed Six Nations International away to Italy in Rome next week. Now it's time to look ahead to the weekend's soccer action with the BBC's John Bennett. The team that finished third last season faces the side that finished fourth as Manchester United welcomed Chelsea to Old Trafford. Both have had mixed starts to this campaign and differing fortunes in the summer transfer market. Chelsea have won just two of their opening five games. United have lost two of their opening four games, but their confidence has been boosted by an impressive win over PSG in Paris in the Champions League this week. Liverpool are in Premier League action for the first time since the news emerged that star defender Virgil van Dijk has suffered a very serious knee injury. They host Sheffield United at Anfield. Without van Dijk, Jurgen Klopp's side beat Ajax in the Champions League on Wednesday. Versatile midfielder Fabinho played at centre-back. Arsenal's top four credentials will be tested when they face Leicester City at home. Leicester started the season well but have lost their last two Premier League games. And Everton will be aiming to maintain their unbeaten start to the season away to Southampton. Carlo Ancelotti's side have only dropped points once this season and that was in last weekend's dramatic Merseyside derby against local rivals Liverpool. Meanwhile, there's a London derby as bottom of the table Fulham play Crystal Palace at Craven Cottage. Fulham are yet to win this season. A reminder of our top stories tonight. China demands that Britain correct its mistakes after London tells Hong Kongers how they can become UK citizens. Ireland becomes the latest country to scrap extradition to the SAR. And Cathay Pacific staff say they're under pressure to quickly accept pay cuts. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. A new study on Hong Kong's wildlife trade has concluded that local authorities have been unable to clamp down on smuggling networks that operate here, partly because there are not sufficiently robust laws in place. Researchers say local authorities seized almost $780 million of traffic wildlife between 2013 and this year. It's estimated to have involved the slaughter of about 3,000 elephants, 190,000 pangolin and 67 rhinos. Despite these large seizures, no traffickers have ever been prosecuted for money laundering offences and no syndicates have been indicted for wildlife smuggling. 
One of the researchers, Professor Amanda Whitford from the University of Hong Kong's Law Faculty, told RGHK's Jim Gould why existing legislation lacks teeth. Because that legislation is only about the licensing, the import and the export of endangered species, it doesn't target smuggling. So it's not proving deterrent enough to stop the trade. That's despite the maximum sentences for uh, the illegal import of endangered species having been raised from two to ten years in May 2018. Just last year, we saw uh, smuggling increase threefold. Nine tonnes of pangolin scales seized in 2019, two tonnes of ivory, 334 tonnes of illegal wood and 30 tonnes of other endangered species, mainly reptiles. So if wildlife crime was defined as an organised and serious crime, traffickers would end up being hurt where they feel it, which is financially. A wildlife trade is a high-profit, low-risk crime, but Hong Kong continues only to catch the mules, which it imprisons. But it seizes record-breaking container loads of dead animals, and yet we have no traffickers uh, being prosecuted for money laundering and no syndicates being indicted for smuggling. So how confident are you that uh, including wildlife offences in the Organised and Serious Crimes Ordinance uh, would prove an effective deterrent? It would be a game-changer because what we would then have are the full power of Hong Kong laws being used to investigate wildlife smuggling here and internationally, seizing the proceeds of crime and enhancing sentences by 30 to 50%, uh, which is all of what we need in order to target this kind of crime effectively. I mean, wildlife crime is the fourth most lucrative form of organised crime in the world. There's no sensible reason why it's not in OSCO. But as you point out, um, wildlife smuggling is a transnational activity, so how, how difficult does that make it to bring down these syndicates? Well, uh, the police uh, are involved in um, international uh, smuggling um, intelligence uh, outside of, outside of um, wildlife crime. Customs and excise do have some uh, ability to do this kind of work. They're just not focusing on wildlife smuggling as being an important part of uh, the, the enforcement work that they do. Uh, so have you approached the SAR government about amending the law? Absolutely. We've approached them. Uh, we've asked them to do it. They, they say that uh, because they've made it an indictable crime that money laundering prosecutions are not possible. But what they're failing to recognise is that those aren't going to happen unless the investigation is done first. And whilst wildlife crime remains not a predicate offence, uh, then it will be left out of the equation. So uh, currently, how serious is the situation of wildlife smuggling and the illegal trade uh, in Hong Kong? Uh, has it been getting worse? It's, it's increased threefold in the last 12 months, and uh, this is despite mm. even the, the impact of COVID-19. So it is only getting worse. The deterrent factor of the 2018 amendments isn't significant enough. And what's the situation like now in mainland China? Uh, in mainland China, uh, there's been a move to crack down on illegal smuggling. Um, obviously, that, that is being affected somewhat by the new controls on what can be bred in China. But the problem is, um, our study showed that 50% over the last... 2014 to 2018 was the period we studied. 50% of cases during that period where uh, offenders were prosecuted in mainland China for uh, smuggling tiger bone and rhino horn, the contraband had come through Hong Kong. 
So Hong Kong really is the gateway for much of this smuggling to go on into China, and this is something that we can, as a territory, do something about. It's something that's being cracked down on in China, and there's no reason why Hong Kong should be being left behind. Now, I understand you compared Hong Kong's uh, legislation and policy with uh, those in the the European Union, the USA and Australia. um, um, Are we seriously lagging behind uh, other places in terms of the legal framework in protecting wildlife? Yes, we are, because what we're doing is the absolute minimum. What, what has happened with CAP 586 is been in reflection of the obligations under CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, but there's been no effort to go beyond that, and each of the jurisdictions that, that we studied has moved beyond that. They have increased traceability of legally traded animals to stop laundering, which is something that, that Hong Kong has been reluctant to do with its free trade policy. Um, they have cracked down on shops and online trading. They've ensured that animals uh, have possession permits um, regardless of whether they're Appendix 1, 2 or 3 species, whereas we only require it for uh, live Appendix 2 and Appendix 1 um, that are wild caught. Uh, So we've seen government in Hong Kong do this work uh, where it has felt that that the public has wanted it. We've seen a crackdown on the ivory trade. We've seen um, something else that I worked on, the dog trade, uh, was cleaned up um, in relation to illegal smuggling and breeding. There's no reason why this can't happen for endangered species. There just has to be the uh, impetus within government to do something. Pro-democracy lawmakers have again thwarted their rivals' attempts to elect the chairman for two LegCo panels. The pro-establishment camp says the pandems are just wasting everyone's time and they may ask LegCo president Andrew Leung to intervene. Francis Sitt reports. The heads of all the panels, except welfare services and information technology, were chosen last week, with the pro-establishment camp aiming for a clean sweep. Anne Zhang is tipped to win the welfare panel post, while Junius Ho is expected to grab the IT chairmanship as the pro-government camp hosts the majority in Leshko. The pan-democratic lawmakers presiding over the elections for the two panels decided to let candidates explain their platforms and take questions from their colleagues. The pro-government camp cried foul, though, with the DAB's Ben Chan warning that the elections won't be completed within this year at this rate. Junius Ho warned Charles Mock, who's presiding over the IT panel election, that he will ask LegCo President Andrew Lang to appoint someone else to take over the proceedings if the filibustering continues. This all of the um, procedure could have been just easily resolved and finished within 15 minutes. So therefore, in view of how he was just trying to play out and delay the matter or allow the things to be delayed, that's why it resulted my gentle reminder to him. I would give him the indulgence of time for another meeting. Prolonging to another, I think that is already too far-fetched. But Democrat Andrew Wan says his camp have been dealing with the elections impartially, and it is the pro-government camp who have deviated from normal practice in order to speed up the election process. It's unfair to say that we are trying to delay all the panels' work, and we just have two panels left, and we need to do the chairman and the vice chairman election procedure precisely and legally. Mr. Wen says there's nothing new about questioning the candidates for panel chairmanships, but somehow the pro-government camp has forgotten this. The final TV debate between US President Donald Trump and his Democratic challenger Joe Biden in Nashville was a more sedate and controlled affair than the first debate.
The BBC's Nick Bryant sent this report. The final presidential debate. After the bedlam of their first encounter, a presidential debate that demonstrated the benefits of pressing mute. At the beginning of each section, each candidate will have two minutes uninterrupted to answer my first question. As the candidates set out their arguments, their opponents' microphones were silenced and turning down the volume raised the level of debate. Anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. We're learning to live with it. We have no choice. We can't lock ourselves up in a basement like Joe does. He says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. The clashes were still angry. The differences between them still stark, not least on the crisis that has dominated this election, the response to COVID-19. We're about to go into a dark winter, a dark winter. And he has no clear plan and there's no prospect that there's going to be a vaccine available for the majority of the American people before the middle of next year. We have to open our country. We're not going to have a country. You can't do this. We can't keep this country closed. This is a massive country with a massive economy. People are losing their jobs. They're committing suicide. There's depression, alcohol, drugs at a level that nobody's ever seen before. It was not just the volume that was different, but the tone. Donald Trump heeded the counsel of his advisors not to keep interrupting his opponent. But he did mount a personal attack on the former vice president and the business dealings of his son, Hunter. The kind of money that you were raking in, you and your family, and Joe, you were vice president when some of this was happening. There's a reason why he's bringing up all this malarkey. There's a reason for it. He doesn't want to talk about the, the, the substantive issues. It's not about his family and my family. It's about your family. And your family's hurting badly. I want to, is a I want to talk about North Korea. Me, I do want to second, turn to please. 10 seconds, Mr. President. That's 10 a seconds. typical political statement. The family, around the table, everything. Just right. a typical politician when I see that. Let's talk I'm about North Korea. not a typical Korea politician. Okay, That's why I got elected. Come on, Joe, you can do better. We're gonna Some of the most impassioned exchanges came over the Trump administration's immigration policies and the separation of immigrant children from their parents. Who built the cages, let's, Joe? Let's talk about what Who we're built talking the cages, about. Let's Joe? talk about what we're talking about. What happened? Parents were ripped, their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 of sets of those parents and those kids are alone. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. It's criminal. He had eight years he was vice president. He did nothing except build cages to keep children in. The racial turbulence of the Black Lives Matter summer provided another flashpoint. I am the least racist person. I can't even see the audience because it's so dark. But I don't care who's in the audience. I'm the least racist person in this room. He pours fuel on every single racist fire. Come on. This guy is a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. Just as Joe Biden benefited from low expectations in the first debate, Donald Trump cleared a low behavioral bar in the second. Self-destructive during their initial encounter, the president gained from showing more self-restraint. I want to thank you both for a very robust hour and a half of fantastic debate. But it's hard to see how this debate will dramatically alter the trajectory of this race, especially since almost 50 million Americans have already cast their votes. Thank you, everyone, and have a great night. Thank you. Subscription streaming services have come to dominate the way many people around the world now listen to their music. 
But the BBC has found that some of the world's largest platforms, including Spotify and Apple Music, have been hosting songs with explicitly racist, homophobic and anti-Semitic lyrics. That's despite a crackdown on this type of content three years ago. Lots of the music has now been removed. The BBC's Steve Holden reports. The sheer amount of music on streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer and YouTube is mind-blowing. But just like the internet, there are some dark corners. We found songs across those platforms with explicitly racist, homophobic and anti-Semitic lyrics. Some of them included references to the Aryan race, white supremacy and in one case featured an excerpt of a Hitler speech. In some cases, an album or song's original title had been changed by removing words such as Aryan and white, possibly to avoid detection. But when we listen to the content, the lyrics remained the same. Eric Ward is a civil rights strategist with the Western State Center in America. There is an attempt by white power music acts to manipulate the titles of their music. But the onus is on streaming platforms to, to do a better job at monitoring and searching for this music. They simply need to invest more. After a similar issue was highlighted in 2017, Spotify introduced a new hate content policy vowing to remove songs and artists which breached it. But campaigners like Eric don't think that's good enough. People trust streaming services. They believe in the credibility of them, even unconsciously. People are not coming on to streaming services to be presented with hate music and hate lyrics. Uh, it is expensive. It is hard work, but it must be done. Back in the day, pre-internet and social media, you couldn't just walk into any high street store or record shop like this and buy the music that we're talking about. It was underground. But critics now say streaming services have made it easily accessible. So in response to this, Spotify said the music in question has been removed and it's continuously developing and improving technology that identifies such content. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Steve Danton from our newsroom. The Community Care Fund disperses a $10,000 allowance for new arrivals in low-income families. Persons from low-income families who are aged 18 or above and have settled in Hong Kong for less than seven years can apply. Phased application starts on September 27th. Online applications and paper form submissions are accepted for either direct payment to a sole name bank account or check payment. Application closes on December 31st, 2020. Visit the fund's website or call 3988-1810 to learn more. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to This is your program, the music we love from way back, Nostalgia with Ray Codero. Tony Pearson at the piano, and his orchestra as well. You don't bring me flowers.
Song. <laughs> 